Marlene Morin lived in Takeoff Place, Wellington, Florida, which is a very rich and exclusive neighborhood. The home was part of the Arrow Club community, which is a community where every house had access to a private runway. Marlene worked hard for the life she had. She was a businesswoman, a cargo ship inspector, and even owned an airplane and a racehorse. Despite having a privileged life that she worked hard for, Marlene had quite a few heartaches before reaching success. Married when she was a teenager, her first husband died not long after the couple had two children, by the time she was 20 years old. Soon, she remarried and moved to Florida with her new husband, where she had a happy and fulfilling life. That is until her son, John, died in a car accident in 1988. After this, life with her husband was not the same, as the death of a child can be very devastating for a parent. Still, she continued on for the sake of her other son, Joseph, but things just were not the same between her and her husband after her son passed away. However, even though the relationship with her husband changed, friends, family, and neighbors only had the best things to say about Marlene, who described her as a loving mother, kind, courteous, and caring. Many also stated she was one who would go out of her way to help anyone. On Saturday, May 26, 1990, Marlene Warren was at home making breakfast for her and her 21-year-old son, Joseph. At about 10.45 a.m., they noticed a white Chrysler LeBaron pull into the driveway, followed by a knock at the door. Marlene answered the door and was heard saying, Oh, how pretty, before a loud bang sounded. Looking out the window, a clown could be seen calmly walking back to the vehicle and taking off. Joseph found his mother by the front door, laying on the floor with blood everywhere. Marlene Morin had been shot. But who would want to kill Marlene? And why dressed as a clown? A case so shocking, it took authorities 30 years to solve. But is the case really closed? Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at tamsinleecrimsonsin.podbean.com or you can also find them in the description. Murders in the early 90s in America, especially in Florida, were very prevalent. But what really captivated everyone about this case was the clown costume, the flowers, and balloons. To many, it appeared as though the killer made this very personal. Everyone suspected that the person who murdered Marlene Warren had to have known her or the family in some way or another. Wellington, Florida is right next to the Everglades and is one of the richest cities in Palm Beach. It is described as a quiet neighborhood filled with lavish homes. It was Memorial Day weekend on May 26, 1990, a normal hot and humid South Florida day. 40-year-old Marlene Warren was a working mom enjoying a morning at home with her 21-year-old son, Joey, and three of his friends. 
She was cooking breakfast for her son and his friends when a white Chrysler LeBaron pulled up in the Warren's driveway. The person driving the car gets out of the vehicle dressed like a clown with a curly orange wig, red bulb nose, white face makeup, and a big colorful suit. The person was dressed for the occasion for the classic friendly clown look. The clown walked to the front door with two foil balloons, one that had You Are the Greatest written on it and a basket of red and white carnations. Marlene answered the door where the clown hands her the balloons and flowers. Joe heard his mother say, oh, how pretty, before hearing a gunshot. The clown had pulled out a gun and fired it at point-blank range to Marlene's face. Joe stated that he saw his mother fall to the floor, and in that moment, it was as if everything was in slow motion. He was probably trying to process what was happening before he was able to make himself jump into action. He and his friends hurried to the door, seeing that his mother had been shot and lay gasping for air. Everybody in the house was paralyzed from the shock, which inevitably gave the clown time to get back into the car and leave. A neighbor named Bill Kramer just so happened to be walking his dog outside when he heard something that sounded like a nail gun to him. He then stated that some very excited young people came running out saying, they've shot Joey's mother. Bill's wife told them to stay there as she called the police. Joey ran for the car to try to chase the vehicle. He said that he didn't even use the road. He drove right through people's properties to try and catch who did this. Unfortunately, he couldn't catch up to the vehicle. Police and paramedics arrived at the home, finding Marlene on the floor just inside the front door, bleeding from her mouth. When authorities arrived, it was a very chaotic situation, and they immediately put out a be on the lookout for the white Chrysler LeBaron. She was rushed to the hospital where they had found bone and metal embedded in her tongue and Marlene was hooked up to life support. Everyone within the home became very crucial in the investigation. Authorities needed to know what Joseph and his friends saw. They needed to know descriptions and so much more. Unfortunately, the only thing that Joe could really recall was that the clown's eyes were brown. It was something that stuck with him as the clown got in the getaway car. Joe would also mention in interviews about the incident where he was asked if, from the individual's gait and mannerisms, if the culprit seemed to be a man or a woman. To which he stated that he felt the clown was a man because the person had big hands for the person's size, who was described as being tall, maybe six foot, and the clown wasn't wearing oversized shoes. Instead, the person wore military-style boots. Marlene Warren spent most of her childhood on her grandparents' farm in a small town north of Detroit. She had two sisters and was the middle child. Joe says that she was a great mother, a person of love, a good wife, and was just 
all around the American mother. Marlene's mother stated that she was outstanding, friendly, loving, kind, would do anything for anybody. And her stepfather stated that she was always courteous and always respectful. Marlene always liked clowns, even having a clown-themed room in her childhood home. She loved clowns when she was a little girl. Marlene's mother still has a painting of a clown that Marlene made when she was younger. So in this sense, the clown costume was the perfect costume to commit this crime in. Because not only did it disguise the person's identity, but it also made it personal because Marlene loved clowns, right? She wouldn't be threatened by a clown. For many people, a clown showing up at your door would be kind of slightly eerie. Not only is it slightly eerie that the person chose this getup to attack Marlene, but with clown makeup and the entire costume, the person becoming the clown is essentially disguised pretty well. Clowns are supposed to fill you with joy and happiness as they perform goofy tricks, which I never understood that because clowns always, you know, freaked me out to begin with. So they never filled me with happiness. They filled me with fright. <laughs> but in movies and shows, many people are shown a more sinister side to clowns as they are portrayed as killers and murderers because with that disguise it is very hard to tell who is underneath all of that makeup. What captivates most people about this case was the fact that the perpetrator was wearing a clown costume. Without the costume, this case would have been treated just as a regular random shooting slash homicide case. However, the perpetrator made it even more bizarre by choosing to dress up as a clown. Marlene married when she was fairly young, and by the time she was 18, she already had two young children. Suddenly, she is struck with tragedy when her first husband suddenly dies. At only 20 years old, she is a widow with two young children. But not long after her first husband died, she met her next husband, Michael Warren. Marlene and Michael Warren had been married for nearly 20 years. Joe stated that Michael and him had a pretty good relationship and he had become a father figure for him and his brother while growing up. He continued that he felt that his stepfather was a good husband for his mother. After marrying, the family would relocate to South Florida to make a new start in life. Marlene was always cheery and smiley, always trying to put a good foot forward, and no one had a bad thing to say about her. So it baffled many that someone who was genuinely kind and who everyone genuinely loved would have an enemy out there that would wish any ill will on her. No one could fathom who could commit a crime like this. On the morning of the attack, Michael Warren had headed off to Miami to a racetrack. He left with some of his friends somewhere around 10 o'clock in the morning. They were halfway to Miami when they received the news that Marlene had been shot. 
Upon hearing of the attack on his wife, Michael turns around and heads straight to the hospital where Marlene is clinging to life. Joe sat with his mother holding her hand all day at the hospital, desperately hoping that there was something that could have been done. But two days after the shooting, Marlene's mother told the staff to unplug life support machines. Marlene Warren died on Memorial Day, May 28, 1990. Her funeral was held on June 1, 1990. Investigators were at the funeral taking pictures, taking note of who was in attendance, and watching how people acted and what they did. Authorities felt that the perpetrator was someone who obviously put a lot of forethought into their actions. They planned their disguise, their delivery, and their escape. Because Marlene was married and had a lot of money, many were confused as to why or how she was a victim of some random killer clown. Unfortunately, ballistic evidence was limited because there was a single projectile inside of Marlene Warren. There wasn't a shell casing, there wasn't a firearm found. The only things of any value to investigators were the two balloons and the flower basket that sat at the front doorstep. It became the focal point of the evidence inside the home. So the only helpful evidence at this point in time that investigators had were the balloons and the flowers. So police began canvassing the whole area for any places that sold the foil balloons and the baskets of carnations to see if they could find any leads as to who the culprit was. The red heart-shaped balloon that had the words you're the greatest written on it was only sold at one grocery store in Palm Beach County called Publix Supermarket. Authorities followed up on this lead where two employees told investigators that they remembered selling the exact basket of flowers and balloons that were found at the crime scene only two hours before the attack. When asked what the person looked like, the employees told investigators that it was a white female with long brown hair and a ponytail. They also referred to her as having male mannerisms. Investigators also tried to locate the clown costume in the same manner. They began calling costume shops around the area to see which stores may have sold a clown costume within the week leading up to the murder. The owner of one of these shops, called Spotlight Costume, told the investigators two employees had sold a clown suit to a customer just a couple of days before the shooting. One of the employees recounted that the shop was closed as she was locking the door when somebody walked up to her telling her that they really needed to buy a costume, which the employee asked if they could return the next day because they were closed. The person stated it was an emergency, that they really needed that costume that night. Which, in this type of situation, the urgency could seem plausible if it were Halloween. But this was in May, so it really struck everyone as odd. The person was very persistent in wanting to get inside the shop, stating that they really needed a clown costume. So the employee eventually let the customer in. Because they knew the transaction would be really fast, they already knew what they wanted, so it would be quick and pain-free. 
The customer quickly selected a Ruby's costume, clown wig, Bob Kelly clown makeup, and a sponge nose. Nothing bought was expensive. Everything the customer purchased was the cheapest thing possible in the shop. But what really stuck out to the employee was when the customer told her that they needed to have extra white makeup to cover the face and just completely cover the detail. Which led authorities to believe that the person in question was concerned with someone being able to identify them. When the employee was asked what the customer looked like, she stated that they looked androgynous, which is a very interesting way to describe somebody. She explained that the person was rather tall, maybe about 5'8", and had brown eyes. She stated that she remembered thinking while interacting with the customer that you really couldn't tell if the person was a man or a woman, but she told investigators that the person who purchased the costume was a woman. She stated that the person was androgynous, wearing jeans, flannel shirt, and men's work boots. She wasn't wearing any makeup or nail polish. One more detail that the employee provided was that the customer was not interested and did not buy clown feet. Of course, this piqued investigators' interest because the person who shot Marlene was not wearing clown shoes either. So at this point in the investigation, authorities have a pretty interesting description of the person who could have committed the murder, right? Two employees at the grocery store stated it was a woman with male mannerisms, while the costume shop employee described the customer as being androgynous. And this should be considered a compelling link to look into, right? But authorities had Marlene's husband, Michael, in their sights, as the spouse is always the prime suspect, until they can be ruled out. Even though he had a solid alibi, they were looking at him as having some potential involvement in the murder of his spouse because, aside from the obvious, investigators caught wind that Michael and Marlene were having marital problems and appeared to be building up to a divorce. Michael Warren had been selling cars in South Florida for many years. By 1990, he was running a lot called a Bargain Motors, which sold and rented out used cars. It was a business you went to if you had really bad credit and you needed something to drive. Many described Michael as a hard-working and charismatic person who was not very educated and appeared to come from a rough background. But Marlene's mother described him as smooth. And not in a complimentary way. He always arrived at his used car lot early in the morning and left late. So A Bargain Motors took off and it became his main source of income. Suzanne Gould was an office manager at Michael's car lot and was about to provide a lot of insight into Michael. She stated that his smile was possessing and he had an air of confidence about him. But those closest to him stated that trouble always seemed to follow him everywhere. For instance, one time his plane disappeared and appeared somewhere else with a broken engine. Nobody knew what happened. Another instance of this was when he had a racehorse at one point and then one day the horse just turned up dead. 
One Wellington resident even stated that Michael always seemed to have a different side to him. When questioned if by the word different they meant mean or a secret life, but the resident just replied different. It was as if they didn't really know how else to describe him. Kind of like he wanted to elaborate, but at the same time, he kind of just wanted to keep his mouth shut. While Mike was managing the car lot, Marlene owned and operated a number of rental properties in the Westgate area. They had roughly 17 different pieces of property in Palm Beach County. Investigators received information from neighbors that one of the tenants hated Marlene and was possibly in the process of being evicted from the residence. Which that wouldn't be a bad place to start your investigation if a person was fearful of losing the roof over their head. That has the possibility of causing someone to become desperate, right? Unfortunately, authorities were unable to locate any tenants that would fit this motive. To everyone on the outside, Marlene and Michael seemed to have a very happy marriage, with what appears to be no financial issues. However, there is some friction between the couple. Michael starts spending a lot of time at A Bargain Motors, with many factors leading to the breakdown of their marriage, it seemed that they were heading for a divorce, but one of them could potentially lose their livelihood from this divorce. They had a lot of money, their finances were entangled, which would make it nearly impossible for a quick, clean divorce. It would have proved to be a lengthy and complicated battle. They owned so many different properties, including their big house in Wellington and all the rental properties, their businesses along with other assets. There would be nothing easy about it. But if Marlene were to just pass away, then Michael would be the beneficiary. In the days after Marlene's death, her stepfather Bill has this weird gut feeling that Michael is hiding something. He told him, I don't think that you've done it, but I know pretty damn well that you know more about it than you're letting on. Michael just denied knowing anything more about Marlene's death and the killer clown. However, Bill wasn't the only one with his suspicions. In an effort to clear the air and put everyone's suspicions to rest, Michael decides to proclaim his innocence by doing an interview for a radio show. Four days after the shooting, authorities received a huge break in the case. At a Winn-Dixie on Okeechobee Boulevard in West Palm Beach, workers noticed that there had been a vehicle sitting in the parking lot for days. They had not witnessed anyone go in or out of it, and it just appeared highly suspicious. Authorities inspect the vehicle, which was a white Chrysler LeBaron, which was an exact match for the getaway car the killer clown took off in. They tape off the vehicle, secure a search warrant, and tow it away in order to search the car. It wasn't hard to find 
red orange wig fibers in the front and back seats of the car as well as on the door. They sent these fibers out to the FBI for analysis which stated that these fibers were not natural, made from acrylic, which no other information can be gained from this because it's not like they were gaining evidence like DNA. So it cannot be matched to one particular wig manufacturer or shop. However, it does help point investigators in the right direction. But one discovery that proved to be far more helpful was a couple of strands of long brown hair. Unfortunately, there wasn't special testing that they could perform on these strands of hair back in 1990. But something else that was very beneficial in the discovery of the LeBaron was that the license plate was registered to a used car rental lot called Payless, which had been reported stolen roughly two weeks before. What was interesting to investigators was that A Bargain Motors was kind of at war with Payless because they were essentially competitors, both offering the same services of buying or renting used vehicles. But this little war was more than just over competition because A Bargain Motors was intentionally running misleading and confusing ads to steal Payless customers. A Bargain Motors had an advertisement in the yellow pages that looked very similar to the Payless advertisement and customers would basically get confused. At the top of the ad, A Bargain Motors was written very small while the words Payless was written in big bold letters. So customers would quickly skim through the phone book and they would see the word Payless in big bold text and would call A Bargain Motors. Which was exactly what happened to a certain couple. A husband and a wife had been duped by someone at A Bargain Motors weeks before the murder occurred. They had rented a white Chrysler LeBaron from Payless. When they were ready to return the vehicle, they mistakenly called A Bargain Motors instead of Payless. An employee at Michael Warren's lot told the couple to leave the car outside the Payless gate, where it was rented, and leave the keys in the visor. They assured the couple that an employee would pick it up. Which it all sounded strange to the couple, but... They did as they were told because they had a flight they needed to catch. After this, the LeBaron was taken back to A Bargain Motors. That's how police alleged that the LeBaron came to be on Michael Warren's lot. One of Michael's employees was actually arrested in connection with the theft of the LeBaron and was eventually convicted for it. However, Michael was never charged in that incident. While the reported theft of the vehicle was solved, the mystery of who used that vehicle to go and kill Marlene still remained. Despite having this link between the LeBaron and potentially Michael's car lot, there wasn't enough evidence there for authorities to arrest him in connection to his wife's murder. Michael had an airtight alibi with witnesses as he was in the car with his friends heading to a racetrack in Miami. Not long after the shooting, a different police agency contacted the sheriff's office to let them know that A Bargain Auto Parts had been under surveillance for some shady dealings. 
Investigators from the West Palm Beach Police Department were looking into Michael Warren for rolling back odometers on his used cars. And it wasn't just one or two cars, it was numerous cars that authorities looked at in the 90s. With these older vehicles, the odometers were mechanical, so it could potentially be done and would be easy to do for anyone who knew what they were doing. On October 25, 1990, five months after Marlene was shot, police execute a search warrant at Michael Warren's car dealership. Investigators conducted a nighttime raid, taking away filing cabinets, insurance information, and numerous other documents. One of Michael's neighbors remembers talking to Michael during this time and recalls that Michael appeared more concerned about the impact this raid would have on his business rather than being concerned about the investigation into his wife's murder. The neighbor elaborated that Michael stated, they are taking all my files, they're taking everything and I'm going to be out of business. He said that he thought it was strange that Michael didn't say anything about the shooting. So the neighbor asked Michael, did you do it? Which he replied, of course not. On October 26, Michael is arrested with 66 counts, including odometer fraud, racketeering, and grand theft. During the trial for these charges, it was established that Michael was a suspect in the murder of his wife, which prosecutors were heavily scrutinized for this slip because it was something that should not have been said for this case. Michael's attorney immediately stated that the prosecution was railroading his client, to which the judge agreed. So with the prosecutors doing this, it was completely in bad taste, and it had nothing to do with the counts being brought against him now. So the prosecutor was just trying to make him seem like this horrible person, like, you know, he's suspected for murdering his wife, you know, of course he, he does messed up things. So, again, not a good idea. Of the 66 counts, the jury found him guilty of 43, which included odometer tampering and fraud. He was then sentenced to nine years in prison. At this point in the investigation, all authorities have is circumstantial evidence in regards to Marlene's murder. From the descriptions that Joe and the employees at the costume shop and Publix grocery store told authorities to the wig fibers found in the white LeBaron, there wasn't anything tying a person to who the killer clown really was. But there were still more leads for investigators to check into. There were very heavy rumors that Michael Warren was having an affair with someone who worked at his car lot. An anonymous tipster even called authorities stating that they needed to look into Michael Warren. The person even told police that Michael was having an affair with a woman named Sheila Keene. Sheila grew up in the small towns on the outskirts of the Everglades near Lake Okeechobee. She was considered a country girl who many considered attractive. Men loved her, but she desired a rich life and only wanted the nicer things. Marlene's son, Joe, stated that Sheila was very attractive with long brunette hair. Suzanne Gould, Michael's office manager, stated that the first encounter she had with Sheila was just like, I never saw her before and then bam, she's there. 
The very first time I saw her, I remember her long, dark hair. And she was pretty and she was very young. Sheila was 27 years old while Michael was 40. Sheila Keen started working for Michael Warren as a repo woman. She would repo the vehicles, receive payment for the amount of repo she brought in, and Michael Warren recovers his asset. She was known to sometimes repossess cars that were in very rough areas. So she was considered fearless by many. And then sometime during her employment, Sheila and Michael apparently began an affair. Since Michael had a strong alibi on the day his wife was murdered, they began looking into Sheila's life and her whereabouts on the day of the murder. While interviewing the other residents at the complex where she lived, they told investigators they thought Michael and Sheila were married because of how often he was at her apartment. Digging into the matter further, authorities found out that Michael was actually paying for the apartment where Sheila lived. Witnesses from A Bargain Motors even reported sexual activities occurring between the two inside Michael's office. These witnesses even alluded to the fact that they believed Marlene was on to their affair. Even Marlene's mother told police that the couple was having marital issues and she suspected that he was cheating on her. However, when authorities asked Michael about the supposed affair, he denied it. And when they asked Sheila about it, she also denied it. But in June 1990, on the same day authorities successfully secured a search warrant for the White LeBaron in the Winn-Dixie parking lot, they also secured a search warrant for Sheila's apartment in West Palm Beach. They reportedly took numerous items from her home, including contents from the trash in her bathroom. However, they did not recover a clown wig, costume, or makeup, nor did they find a firearm. But they did find orange fibers on clothing in her home that seemed to match the ones in the LeBaron. Inside her home, they found army-style boots, that matched the description of the shoes the killer clown was wearing, which also had orange acrylic fibers found on the sole of the boots. While this caused investigators to believe that Sheila had some part to play in the murder of Marlene Warren, no charges were brought against Sheila at this time. Whether this was all just circumstantial or coincidental or what, no one really knows why the case came to a halt. However, authorities claimed that there were so many cases involving a murder during the 1990s that news of the killer clown had disappeared from the headlines entirely. By 2013, it had been more than 20 years since Marlene's murder and there hadn't been even one arrest made in relation to her death. In Palm Beach 2013, the Palm Beach County's Sheriff's Office was able to obtain a cold case federal grant which allowed them to go back to this case with enhanced testing. Back in the 1990s, there wasn't a whole lot of forensic science that could be relied on as the concept was still in its infancy stage. Yes, they could get fingerprints and such, but they couldn't perform the intricate DNA testing with hair and, and stuff like that. 
So, with that being said, going back to this case with the evidence collected and an advancement in science could potentially lead investigators to the breakthrough they have been looking for. But the advancement in science wasn't the only thing new for this case. A new sheriff and DA could also provide a fresh perspective on the case. Looking at the evidence, they would be able to send off the human-like long brown hair that investigators found in the LeBaron. If this was human hair, prosecutors would now be able to determine more to this case than the clown hair, as one of these hairs had a portion of the root and skin on it. Even searching through the public's employees and costume store employees' descriptions of the customer who purchased all of these items back in the 90s, it was alarming that nothing was done. Sheila Keen was never charged with anything. But where was the suspects now? In 1997, Michael Warren decided to move on with his life and had a new girlfriend named Debbie. Warren moved up to the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, living a quiet life and owning a fast food restaurant called The Purple Cow, which he was running with Debbie. The Purple Cow is a little fast food restaurant which was located right off a busy highway with three life-sized Purple Cows out front and was considered very popular by the locals. Michael and Debbie would work long hours from morning to night and sometimes even six days a week. Most accounts state that staff at the Purple Cow was treated like family. Michael would even send everybody on cruises paying for it all. Which, that would be nice to have a boss like that. Michael and Debbie owned a sprawling mansion on a lake in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It was a brick steepled house that was very fancy and had a boat dock out front. In this tight-knit community they lived in, they were known as the happy, fun, and very close couple. However, other neighbors stated that they witnessed a different side to Michael. A confrontation between Michael and his neighbors ensued after Michael went on to their property with a tractor to take some rock from their lakeside home. In May 2017, on the 27th anniversary of Marlene Warren's death, reporters from Florida decided to conduct their own investigation into the cold case because they were curious where the suspects went. One of these reporters found out that Michael Warren is living in Virginia, so she heads out that way to investigate what locals are saying about him. While there, she asks around about a woman named Sheila Keen. One of Michael's acquaintances refers to Debbie. It didn't take long for reporters and investigators to find out that Debbie was just an alias. The person in question was really Sheila Keen, who was now going by the name Debbie, and who had also dyed her hair blonde, which is highly suspicious, right? After doing more digging, it was soon discovered that 12 years after Marlene's death, Michael and Sheila had actually gotten married in 2002. Once Michael was released from prison, he was reunited with Sheila and they moved their life together to Tennessee and Virginia. 
It did not take long for law enforcement to come knocking on their door as Palm Beach County prosecutors issued an arrest warrant based on new evidence. What really broke this case wide open? The hair DNA. It was determined that the two strands of brown hair found in the LeBaron belonged to Sheila Keen. On September 26, 2017, Sheila and Michael were returning home from a road trip to Vermont when officers pulled them over in their black Cadillac. The officer then informed the couple that they had an arrest warrant for Sheila for the murder of Marlene. The only person arrested at this time was Sheila because authorities did not have enough evidence to file any charges against Michael. While investigators have their suspicions about Michael, they do not have the concrete evidence they need in order to tack any charges on him pertaining to Marlene's murder. From Virginia, Sheila was sent back to Florida where prosecutors sought out the death penalty. Many thought Sheila appeared to be shell-shocked by the events, which if she did do it, after 27 years, I think anyone would think that these actions came out of left field. After her arrest, the Warrens' neighbors were dumbfounded by Sheila's arrest. They do not believe that she could be capable of committing such a crime. At her hearing, she pleads not guilty with the death penalty hanging over her head. Which is crazy because there are some innocent people that faced the death penalty and was like, yeah, okay, I did it. Just so they wouldn't receive a death sentence. Sheila stated that she could not possibly have committed this crime because she was out repoing cars at the time of the murder. While she is proclaiming her innocence from the crime, she also is not pointing the finger at who could have possibly done this, leaving this action up for speculation. Most people in this situation would probably start throwing names out at prosecutors, even if they had no idea who could have possibly murdered the person in cold blood. But then again, if you don't know, you just don't know. While prosecutors had the evidence they needed to arrest Sheila, they did not have two crucial pieces of evidence that make it difficult for anyone to say the person in question is guilty. Without a doubt, that person is guilty. The two pieces would be an eyewitness who can identify the culprit and a murder weapon. Investigators were at a loss for the murder weapon. That is until a former employee of Michael's from A Bargain Motors contacts them out of the blue. The employee tells investigators that he has information on where to find a second car, claiming that it is connected to Marlene Warren's death. This person also alleged that authorities would be able to find the wig, clown costume, and murder weapon inside the submerged vehicle. As Sheila sat in prison, authorities were dredging up a vehicle from a Florida canal, the C-51 canal, hoping to find the murder weapon. A 1982 Audi is pulled out of the canal at the exact location the tipster stated it would be. When investigators looked inside, they could not find anything that could connect the car to Marlene Warren's murder. 
Making this tip a false lead. By 2020, everything in this case at this point is purely circumstantial and all of the prosecution's evidence is from 30 years ago. Unfortunately, prosecutors are only able to build their case around these circumstances. And one of the very first pieces of that puzzle that ties everything together is from the Publix supermarket where the flowers and balloons were purchased. The employees who were interviewed at the time described the customer as wearing worker clothes, gloves, and had long brown hair. But an interesting fact about this Publix grocery store is that it is less than a mile away from the apartment Sheila was living at. And the items were purchased 82 minutes before Marlene's murder. This evidence together with the costume shop employee's description both came from the very first week of the investigation in 1990. The employees even identified Sheila from a photo lineup shown to them by the police. Each person identifies Sheila Keene as the person who came into the store. One witness finally comes forward to the prosecution. There was a man who owned a parts store in a small town called Pahokee who called police with an interesting story about Sheila Keene. He stated that she came in wearing a full clown outfit, claiming that she delivered flowers as a clown. The man stated that him and the other guys teased her about it, and she teased them back. Then she took off and they never saw her again. Investigators also found a picture taken of Sheila years later at the Purple Cow with her face painted as a clown, which this is just circumstantial. I mean, it could have been Halloween and, you know, she went to work dressed as a clown, you know? With all of this information, where Sheila matches the description of the person who bought a clown costume, matching a description of the person who bought flowers and balloons, being known to previously dress up as a clown, being identified by the employees, and having an affair with Michael Warren, it begs the question as to how this wasn't enough evidence to bring the case to court. After 30 years of waiting for his mother's murderer to be apprehended, Joe suddenly recalled an interaction he witnessed with his mother and Sheila Keene roughly six months before Marlene's murder in which Michael's mother had stated to Marlene that she needed to watch out for that one, Sheila. She was a pretty one. Marlene retorted to Sheila, Well, is that the only thing you are helping him with? Referring to the cooking. Sheila looked at Marlene with a sly smirk and remarked, Yeah. And that was the end of the conversation. So even if you didn't know that there was an affair going on, you could kind of read the room with that one that there was some tension. So after being arrested in Virginia, Sheila Keene was sent to solitary confinement and still remains there. She had been in jail for five years awaiting trial. Sheila's defense fought to get her on house arrest, stating that she was not a flight risk or a danger to society, but they never made any headway with these motions. Her defense team had been arguing that the prosecution's case just simply didn't add up. 
stating that the four witnesses at the crime scene stated that the clown was over six feet tall, whereas Sheila Keen is between 5'6 and 5'7. But prosecutors state that just because one person said that the culprit was six foot tall, it doesn't matter because Keen was positively identified as purchasing the costume. However, they also argued that with a clown wig, it would be possible, since it's so curly and bushy, it would be possible for the person to look taller. Her defense also pointed out that three of the four witnesses stated that the clown had to have been a man. Just hands down, it was a man. But again, a clown costume is baggy, the makeup covers all of the identifying details. So, honestly, it is all circumstantial. And to be honest, everyone was in a frenzied state because someone they knew and loved was just shot. It was an emergency situation, so details like this will be easily overlooked. It would be just absolute chaos. Because it is truly amazing the things that your brain focuses on in those types of situations. Yes, you should be able to tell whether or not the culprit was, you know, male or female. But I also know that when you are in that state of shock, things move quickly yet slowly at the same time. So it is hard to keep focus on those important details. Even with the hair found in the car, Keen's defense found an alternate explanation. While the root of the hair positively placed Sheila in that vehicle, the hair was also mixed with an unknown male's DNA. So who's to say that the unknown male didn't have something to do with it? But what prosecutors are looking at is the fact that Sheila and Michael were having an affair, and she eventually married him after Sheila was removed from the picture. On October 12, 2022, merely eight days from the trial, prosecutors found a clown sightings file. The Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office had received numerous clown sightings and citizen leads, all of which were evaluated and placed in a clown sightings file in 1990. This file allegedly contains 40 potential leads from the day of Marlene's murder until a few days after. Sheila's defense had been asking for the file for years, but prosecutors always said they could not find it. Now it just suddenly turned up out of the blue. The file was claimed to have been found in a box for Michael Warren's previous odometer fraud case. So, her defense filed a motion to compel the state to produce this information. While it is strange, to say the least, because it does seem to put an ace up the prosecution's sleeve, benefit of the doubt, it had been roughly 33 years since anyone had last seen the file, and it's not like files were organized like they are today. Still though, it is highly unusual that the file was found so close to her trial. The day the jury selection was supposed to begin, attorneys had to reconvene in the courthouse to explain why this happened. The judge was angry. He was so frustrated, questioning how the sheriff's office did not see that file before. 
stating that it was ridiculous and that this oversight should not have happened. So in response, the judge gives Sheila's defense 60 days to investigate those leads. Of course, 60 days is not a lot of time after 33 years. The witnesses who reported these sightings had moved on with their lives, changed their numbers, moved to a different house, a different city, a different state, and possibly they could have died by this point. As finding these witnesses proved to be very difficult, Sheila's defense filed for motions to suppress some of the prosecution's key evidence. One such piece of evidence is a mysterious fiber. This six to eight inch fiber was embedded into a balloon ribbon that was left at the crime scene, but investigators did not find this fiber until they reopened the case. The balloons and the ribbons were thoroughly looked over in 1990 by investigators who did not find anything. So Sheila's defense was obviously not happy when they were told prosecutors had now discovered something. This piece of fiber was consistent with another piece of fiber which was stated to have been found at Sheila King's apartment and ultimately linked the two together. Looking at this, you wonder how many people had access to this evidence, and maybe it was contaminated. But on the other hand, Sheila's defense started accusing the state of basically railroading her and setting her up. To back up the claim that the evidence was contaminated, there was a file stating that the evidence from this case was being improperly stored and the evidence bags were not always sealed properly. The Palm Beach Post even wrote an article on this which detailed the conditions in which the evidence was stored. The article stated that county auditors discovered some of the evidence was improperly stored. Open bags containing one white clown glove, Seven types of clown makeup, an orange wig, and a bozo-type suit linked to the murder were found in the sheriff's office with the bags open. As if the evidence from prosecutors could not be even more questionable, one piece of information remained hidden and hushed to the public about this case. And I say it is hushed because this bit of information did not make it into the 2020 documentary that I watched and was actually an accidental find in my research. Like, I actually had to really dig for this. So according to an article published by WPBF News on August 10th, 2022, a man named Edward Barr had supposedly bragged to another inmate in Maine during the year 1991 that he was the killer clown who murdered Marlene Warren and that he was paid to do so by Michael Warren. Sheila's defense filed a motion citing that for 10 months, the state had failed to disclose that the potential suspect in the Marlene Warren murder was in custody and being interviewed by detectives. The lead Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office detective even went to Maine, but Edward was never listed as a witness. Edward even told the detective that he would tell him everything, but only on the condition that he would not receive the death penalty. 
And since that could not be promised, things just didn't pan out for law enforcement and he decided to keep his mouth shut about the matter. So this individual's involvement is really up for debate to this day. But a surprising outcome came on April 25th, 2023, when Sheila Keen Warren decided that she was going to plead guilty to second degree murder. Sheila was sentenced to 12 years in prison, but with sentencing guidelines and credit for time served, she could be out in 16 to 18 months, which could range from August to October 2024 which everyone was pretty underwhelmed by this sentencing. Her sentencing went from the death penalty to life imprisonment to settling for a plea deal that would allow her to be out in a minimum of 16 months. Do you think Sheila actually committed this crime or was she just backed into a corner? Do you think that she felt that was the best option she had was to plead guilty and that she actually didn't do it? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. But Joe swears that those brown eyes of the killer clown match Sheila's. But since Sheila was convicted, everyone has wondered what will happen to Michael Warren. Unfortunately, authorities do not have enough evidence to take him to court for any involvement in his former wife's death. However, Michael remains adamant that he is innocent and claims anyone who believes otherwise is reckless and shameful. He furthered that his current wife Sheila is also innocent, but he is grateful that she will be home in the next 16 to 18 months. So what are your thoughts about this case? Do you think Michael and Sheila Warren had anything to do with Marlene's murder? Or do you think they were both taking the blame for another killer? And whatever happened with Edward Barr? Do you think he was really the killer clown? Do you think Sheila was just the lake man purchasing, you know, the clown outfit and all of that for the actual killer? Let me know what you think. Thank you for listening. Please leave your thoughts and requests in the comments and I will see you for the next episode. Bye.